Hello and welcome to RipperCast as we bring to you a discussion about a case from the interwar years, the 1931 murder of Julia Wallace in Liverpool. That is the subject of a brand new book by Mark Russell entitled Checkmate, the Wallace Murder Mystery, published by Mango Books. And joining me on the show today is Tom Westcott, author of The Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential, John Reese, writer and lecturer, and we can probably add podcast engineer to his job description as he's the other half of the Sherlock Holmes from Adler to Amberley podcast. Both of them longtime Rippercast teammates you are well aware of, and we are here to welcome Mark Russell to the show. Hello, Mark. Hi, Jonathan. Great to be here. Thanks. Hello, Mark. Hi, Tom. Hi, John. Hello, uh, thank you for um, coming on. Now, this um, murder case that is the topic of your book, some of our listeners might not be well aware of. So if you would be able to start us off by giving a brief synopsis of the murder of Julia Wallace. Yeah. In 1931, Wallace was a member of the Central Chess Club in Liverpool. And he arrived at the club on this on the Monday night, the 19th of January, and a message was conveyed to him by the club captain, Mr. Beattie, to, that he'd received a telephone message and uh, took the details down for Wallace, who happened to be a prudential insurance agent, to call and address the following evening, the 20th. Well, Mr. Beattie um, relayed the uh, details for Wallace to call it 25 Men Love Gardens East in the Mossley Hill area of Liverpool, which is in the south of the city. And Wallace said, um, is that it? And he said, uh, the caller's name, the caller was R.M. Qualtrow. An unusual name, Q-U-A-L-T-R-O-U-G-H. And Wallace said, I don't know the name and I don't know the address. Is it Menlove Avenue? And the other members said, um, no, Menlove Gardens East. He wants you to call there tomorrow night at 7.30 with regards to your business. So Wallace took them, you know, the note, he'd written it down, Mr. Beatty. And Wallace took it and didn't think any more of it and played chess for the next two hours. The following day, he's doing his rounds in the Clubmore area of Liverpool and he decides to, he said in his testimony after it, he said that he um, discussed the case with Julia, uh, the, the message. And he wasn't even sure if he'd go, but Julia actually talked him into going there. So he left home about quarter to seven in the evening, took three trams, or streetcars as the Americans said, up to um, Medal of Gardens. Well, when he went round there, he found that there was a Medal of Gardens north, south and west, but no east. So he started asking certain people in the area. He even knocked at the woman's house in 25 Medal of Gardens west, asking there, and she said, no, there's no one here of that name, you know, and there's no Medal of Gardens east. And Wallace said immediately said, um, you know, this is within five or ten minutes of being in the area. It's funny there's no east. So I end up going across Menlove Avenue and into Green Lane. Now it emanated afterwards that his own boss, Joseph Crewe, lived in Green Lane, which would point that Wallace did actually know the area. Well, anyway, he, he goes down to Allerton Road and he sees a, police uh, a policeman, James Sargent, and he asks him about Menlove Gardens East. Mr. Sergeant says, um, there's no such place. There's a Menlove Gardens north, south and west. So Wallace says about consulting the directory anywhere, and he said he could try the shop down the road, the post office. He tries there, but 
he doesn't have any luck. So he goes across the road to a newsagent's. He asks there. He finally gives up the ghost and makes his way home. And about quarter to nine, after having a bit of a difficulty in the front door, trying to get through the front door, then the back, then the front again, he goes back around to the back door and he meets his neighbours coming out of their back door, number 31, John and Florence Johnson. Now, he says, have you heard anything unusual? And they said, no, why? He said, I've tried the doors and they're locked against me. They said, well, okay. So Wallace goes up to the door, the backyard door is open. He's got into that, but the back kitchen door into the house, he said he couldn't get into. Now he walks up and he says, he, he opened, he, he held the knob and turned and he said, it opens now. He didn't even put his key in it. And anyway, they wait outside while Wallace makes his trip through the house. About two, two minutes later, he comes out the house and says, come in inside, she has been killed. So they go in and in the front parlour, downstairs the front parlour, they find Julia bludgeoned to death, lying diagonally across the hearth rug. And um, eventually, John Johnston says, I'll go for the police and a doctor, although a doctor's not much use because I think they've established by then that she's dead. The police come at about 10 past nine. Um, then the CID come about 10 to 10 and the pathologist, Professor John McFall. Now, there was talk at the time that the police like actually, like, you know, there was a, a large number of police in the room and they were, like, basically ruining the, you know, the crime scene. But at the time, you know, forensics and that was in its infancy, I suppose, and they didn't really think much of that. But Professor McFall said at the time that he, he judged that she'd been murdered about two hours before his arrival, which would equate to about 10 to 8, and that she'd been murdered by bludgeoned with something quite heavily, a heavy weapon, about three or four times to the head area. Now, the day after that, when he was performing his uh, post-mortem in the Princess Doc Mortuary, he, he altered that and he said, well, the first blow had been administered with terrific force to the left side of the head. And the other there was 10 other um, strikes to the back of the head, which had been administered probably when she was lying on the floor. So uh, basically 11 strikes in all. Now, the fact is that the police really didn't look for anyone else at the time. They, you know, like you're saying before, uh, earlier we were saying that it's usually the spouse. They don't look any further than the spouse who's committed a, when there's a murder within a household. Now, um, the police obviously looked down other areas and that, you know, made investigations, but they came to the conclusion that it was Wallace who had to answer, you know. And um, he was, um, he went to the committal proceedings and then they found that he was, there was a case to answer for. And he went on trial in, in April. And after a four day hearing, he was found guilty, which surprised a lot of people at the time because a lot of people thought that the judge was directing the jury to a not, gu not guilty verdict. And then, within a month after that, you know, his uh, solicitors, Hector Monroe, put, a, put in for an appeal and um, within 10 days of the verdict. And he went down to London, you know, to the Royal Court of Justice, as they are now. They were the law courts then. And after the two-day hearing, the, you know, the verdict was quashed, which was a bit of a record in, at the time because of this kind. And he said that the, uh, the verdict couldn't be... Um, 
can be upheld with regards to the evidence. In, in other words, that the jury got the verdict wrong. Um, that um, basically, from what I understand, it was more like um, the the appeals court um, determined that you know, although there was um, a lot of uh, reasons for suspicion. Um, they um, didn't prove their case, basically, like we would say, beyond a reasonable doubt in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Now, um, um, I know that you uh, go into this in um, the beginning of your book, but um, what led you to become interested in the Walls case? Um, 1975, it was, Jonathan, and it was a, a drama documentary on, on television here, you know, um, local television in Liverpool. The, the Monrada region, it's the Northwestern. Um, I was just seeing it this night, you know. The name right away was called Who Kills Julia Wallace? And I was just enthralled right away. And then the images, you know, of um, what appeared to be someone brandishing a poker back and forth and a woman lying dead on the floor. And I told, I shouted my mum and she came in like and said, oh, this happened just not far away, which I didn't know at the time, which, you know, made me even more interested at the time that it was a local murder and also that me grandparents lived in Anfield at the time and used to pay Wallace on his account. So it had an even more personal note, you know. And um, over the course of your research, um, did your opinion ever change as to whether William Wallace was guilty or innocent or perhaps the degree of guilt that might have attached to him? Yeah, that's... I always, I was on the fence about it, Jonathan. I, I always thought that the lack of blood staining on Wallace was a big factor in his innocence to me. And as, as I was, you know, researching it more and more through the years, I was always on the fence, but I came to the conclusion, you know, probably in the last 15 years, I mean, reading John, Jim, James Murphy's book is an excellent book, but... I came to the conclusion myself that I can't see it being anyone other than Wallace. I'd like to chime in here if you don't mind, Jonathan. Uh, Please, this Tom. is Tom. Uh, you know, Mark, I'm, I often do these Ripper casts and I've written two books on Jack the Ripper. Um, and so when I talk to people on the internet, I'm often talking, I'm talking from the perspective of someone who writes books on the case. But when it comes to the Wallace case, I'm more of a casual reader. So I'm kind of in the other seat and I'm talking to you, the expert here. Um, but what you said kind of reminded me of my own journey. I discovered the Wallace case 20 years ago or so, uh, really from uh, the historian and author, Stuart P. Evans, oh, right, yeah. who would talk to me about it. Um, and I immediately, I was like, okay, because that was I wanted to read about some other classic cases and uh, he said you should look into the Wallace case and uh, so I did and I ordered books uh, the first ones I read were Jonathan Goodman's and his name will be familiar to listeners I imagine he's a very uh, well-known and renowned true crime writer from the you know 20th century uh, and um, in 69 he put out a book uh, on the Julia Wallace case and, and then the next one I read was Roger Wilkes, 
which came out in 84. Of course, when I'm reading these, these are already old books. This is the early 2000s. And they were excitingly fun reads. They were well-written, uh, exciting reads. But the thing about them is they proposed, uh, they were in favor of the innocence of uh, Wallace. And, um, and that, you know, but even reading these, these authors presenting their case for other suspects, I came away feeling like, but I think Wallace is guilty. And, uh, you know, and it, then I read James Murphy's book, which was relatively new at this time. It was actually, you know, I think maybe a year or two. Well, it was a pretty new book. And so I was able to get it inexpensively. Now, of course, that's like impossible to find. I uh, And you know, to me, it was game over. I read uh, Murphy's book and and it just, it, it went from, I think, Wallace is guilty to, there's no way this guy is not guilty. And the reason for that, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that Murphy had um, access to the actual police files, a lot more information than Goodman did in 60s and uh, Wilkes in the 80s. Uh, Goodman was pulling off of... Uh, newspaper reportage and personal interviews wilkes goes even further and is it's if i remember it's he's drawing off a lot of local folklore uh hearsay you know because by then the case had had four decades of people talking about it and and you know oh yeah well sure the killer came into my garage oh yeah i know you know everyone had their stories and wilkes seemed to just kind of accept them and and put them in the book and uh, it makes for exciting reading, but uh, not exactly. Whereas Murphy's book didn't necessarily make for as exciting reading from the perspective of it wasn't a thriller. Uh, but man, was that factually dense. And it's been frustrating for the last 20 years when talking about the Wallace case on the internet. And people are like, what's a good book? The only one I wanted to recommend was Murphy's, but by then it was like $75 a copy because it only, it was a short print. It's not available on Kindle. Um, and so it became almost impossible to recommend. And so I didn't really have a, a, a book. I'm certainly not going to recommend John Gannon, if you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, but I know you, you we're not going to try and we're not going to disparage other authors too much. But so when I heard that Mango Books and this was, God, just a few weeks ago, I guess, Adam announced it, um, that Mango Books was putting out a new book on the Wallace case. My first thought was, oh, no, I, it, you know, hope he's not going to tell us that Julia Wallace was a prostitute or something. All her clients were 22-year-old handsome men and uh, that has appeared in some of the earlier works on the case. Um, but Adam said, I think you'll like it. So uh, I bought it. And uh, and I, he's wrong. I didn't like it. I loved it. I love Checkmate. Thanks a lot. Well, it exceeded my expectations. And I read it from beginning to end. I didn't jump to the conclusion. I committed myself, just like I did to Adam's book, Swanson. I said, well, I, I, I cheated on Swanson. I did skip to the end. But then I went back to the beginning and read through. So on your book, though, I wanted to start on page one, work my way all the way to the back and follow your, your trail of research and logic. And one of the things that stood out to me in Checkmate is like everybody gets a biography. If some woman leans out her window and says, hello, Wallace on his rounds, 
she gets a mini biography in in your notes section. You're not clogging up the narrative with it. It's going into the notes section. But uh, that immediately, I was like, okay, this guy is not just a theorist. He is an actual researcher. And there is a difference. There's theorists. Jonathan Goodman, you know, Roger Wilkes might arguably be called theorists, certainly John Gannon. And then there's, you went really deep. And so I'm curious, when, when did you start your actual research? When did you decide I'm going to write a book on Wallace? And then you started your research. When did that begin? And what made you decide just to go from, I'm interested in the case. I'm like me, I'm a, I'm a casual reader. You at some point said, I'm not just going to be a casual reader. I'm going to become part of this case by researching it from the ground up and writing a book. When and how did that happen? It's a good point, Tom. Um, and thanks for your kind words about the book. <laughs> um, it, I'll be honest, right? When I read Murphy's book, I thought, I thought personally, well, that's the book to end all books on the Wallace murder now. No one would have the audacity to try and claim it was a conspiracy theory, you know. But apparently, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and, yeah, I, right. <laughs> and me research, you know, I remember reading a, an account by Nigel Morland, British criminal writer of the 50s, and he wrote about the Wallace case. And he said, at first, he believed himself to be Wallace innocent, and Richard Whittington Egan is another, by the way, who recounted his, his uh, opinion on, on Wallace. He believed he was guilty in the end. Um, I got to the point where I thought, well, like you're saying, theoretical books, I would rather, I, what I wanted to do was immerse myself in the research, the trial transcripts, the police records and everything without any outside interference of like, you know, other authors or that. So I could try and judge it for myself. And because, um, like you say, you know, I suppose authors, most authors, theoretically, uh, they've got an agenda. Well, I wanted to completely disregard that and just view it all by myself on how I would find out, try and find out the facts, you know, from what I could gather. And um, Like you said before, by the way, about Jonathan Goodman and Roger Wilkes, yeah, you were right. They didn't have access to the police records at the time. They only came about in about 92, I think, and when um, Jim Murphy, you know, was writing his book. But um, it got to the point here, uh, Tom, where I was getting really annoyed about the amount of people that were still claiming Parry was the murderer. And I wanted to try and, you know, I call it break the myth of, like, a lot of the myths surrounding the case, regarding the police as well at the time, you know, that were like as if the police were totally incompetent, but they weren't. Yeah, there was, yeah, there's, there's parts of the case that, you know, they didn't cover themselves in glory, but they were certainly not, in Jonathan's words, Jonathan Goodman's, hardly able to dish out parking tickets for fines, you know. So um, that was what made me want to, and I also wanted to have no agenda whatsoever you know, look at it from a neutral perspective. And I think someone said recently on something that most of your notes, like in most of the book, you, you, you know, is in favour of Wallace. But I was trying to act in an impartial manner. But at the end, coming to the conclusion that I could only see but being a possible conclusion. 
Yeah, I want to jump in on that too. One of the things that I was impressed with is that you weren't dogmatic in, you know, Wallace is guilty and everything must, you know, we be turned towards that eye. When the prosecution in one example is uh, the Macintosh, for some reason, and I'm not really clear why, the, um, the prosecution really just harped on saying that Wallace, we asked him if it was his Macintosh, and he hesitated in answering yes, even though we all know, and they knew at the time, that prior to them, him being posed to that question, he had already acknowledged openly it was his Macintosh. Uh, he had done it to Mrs. Johnson and uh, other um, officers. So this was like a non-issue. And, and you were very clear in, in that case when whenever they would make a, a statement that was factually inaccurate in trying to darken uh, Wallace's name, you would say, well, in fairness to Wallace, this happened or he had actually said this. And so one, when reading the book, uh, you realize you're, you are handling the material with a very even hand. And you don't see that in a lot of true crime books. Um, because like you said, in, any book written has an agenda, whatever that agenda is. In your case, it was just, here's a, you know, in my, the way I read the book was, here is a fair estimation of the evidence. You recognize that both the defense and the prosecution had their biases. Of course they do. One is saying this man's guilty. One is saying he's not guilty. And so you were cutting through those biases to say, here's the actual factual accuracy of these these different elements. And so that was a very, to me, attractive um, element of the book. Others might find it frustrating and that's because they're, they can't get past their own biases. Um, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the biographies, I was curious though, uh, what made you decide I want to learn as much as I can about each human being mentioned in this case? Well, I think what with the biographies, Tom, was, you know, to bring a more human side to it, where you know a personal touch with it and also certainly regarding the police you know to show their background that they were quite you know cap competent and capable police that's why i put a lot of the uh, biographies in with them and also you know um i think to make it you know in case people ask me well what about this person or that person or the other person you know so, um, but certainly regarding the police, they were more extensively because um, Fred Williams, the first policeman on on the um, on the scene at ten past nine, his son Harry Williams contacted me about oh, uh, fourteen years ago to tell me, you know, his dad was the first man on the scene, the first policeman, and you probably read it in Jonathan. Go like you said, it's not dissing Jonathan Goodman's book at all. It's a great book. I love the book, but. Um, Harry told me that his father died in 1947. You know, um, one of the things was that in Jonathan's book was that um, Dr. Coop, who was on uh, um, employed by the defence, you know, to help um, on Wallace's side, was um, doing his ward rounds in the 50s, in the mid-50s in Liverpool in Broad Green Hospital. And some apparently he, t he told... Uh, Jonathan Goodman, a, a man came up to him in hospital, you know, that he was ill, and he said it was Fred Williams, and um, he said, there's a lot I'd like to tell you about that, Dr. Coop. That man was innocent, you know, me and Wallace. Well, anyway, in Jonathan's book, he says that a couple of um, 
a couple of weeks later, he was laid up himself with influenza there, Dr. Coop, and he said he couldn't wait to get back to Broad Green Hospital, you know, to see um, to see about Fred Williams. But when he went back, the Fred apparently had passed away. Now, there's no veracity in this at all, which you mentioned in one of my points, one of my notes, um, the Fred actually died in um, 1947 on Boxing Day. And had he told me that it, it was a somewhat annoyance of, to him that, you know, his father was misrepresented in Jonathan's book. Now, I think when um, Harry contacted Jonathan telling him about it, he, he just said, oh, maybe it was a mistaken identity or that. But I think with the with the notes, you know, to go in detail, I, as I say, I think it was mostly to prove the competence of, certainly where the police are concerned, you know, that they weren't just like um, incapable at the crime scene and that. And, you know, so... I just hope it didn't bore people with the amount of biographical biographical bits on it. No, no, and I, I as a, again as a reader, I can say it didn't because again, you you put that in the uh, the in the notes. So if someone's not interested in reading a particular note, it doesn't interrupt the narrative. They can just keep flowing through. But like the sure. item you just described, that is extremely interesting because people reading your book, uh, I'd say a majority of them have read Goodman's book. Yeah. And, you know, and they have read uh, at least something on the Wallace case before most people buying the book will have. And so having these uh, like as a ripper researcher, one of my favorite things in books is clearing up myths and presenting yeah. new information or information in a new perspective that adds clarity to the narrative and and things like that do. I should mention uh, one of the things about the Wallace case that made it a cause celeb, I believe, and I don't ever hear this talked about is the timing it happened, 1931. Uh, we were in the golden age of the detective novels. And the Wallace case was literally a detective novel come to life. Any element you you know that you were reading from all the classic writers was in this case. And, uh, and one of the things that always occurred to me is I, I had this feeling that Wallace was a student of detective fiction and yet your book is so thorough, it actually names books in his library. None of them are detective novels. Um, uh, he's a chemist by hobby, uh, which is not a, I don't think has ever been a particularly common hobby. I mean, other than a child owning a chemistry set in the 70s, I'm not aware of men doing chemistry in their free time and what they would possibly do with that. But um to me, when constructing the murder of his wife, Wallace was scripting a detective novel. Uh, he was creating intrigue, uh, diversion, distraction, um, quick timing. Um, as you know, Mark, one of the things famously said about the case, uh, well, I think it was Jonathan Goodman who called it the most like unsolvable crime of all time. And people say that every any fact in the case, when isolated, if you look at it, it points to both his guilt and his innocence, which, of course, you know, can't be true. But was, when that was said, there were far fewer facts and there was a lot of myth. And so cutting you and Murphy have cut through a lot of that myth to get to the facts. And once you do that, still, though, let me ask you this. Uh, now that you've written a book, um, and everything is kind of cemented in your brain. Is there any point that still niggles at you and makes you wonder? Not not necessarily about Wallace's guilt, but 
do you ever wonder that maybe he did have a confederate? Yeah, it's a good point, Tom. Um, the thing that I, like I said, I always the thing that led to me doubted his guilt was the lack of blood staining on him. But also, the biggest mystery to me, apart from the killer, which you know I obviously think it's Wallace. I can't understand how the neighbours next door didn't hear anything on the night of the murder. You know, the Johnstons next door. Now, these were houses, and a, a good friend of mine, Linda Williamson, she lived in Wolverton Street in the, in the 60s and 70s. And she, I asked her, I said, well, could you hear noise from next door? She said, yeah. And I mentioned this in the book, that, you know, she could hear someone whistling next door or arguing or, you know, doors shutting or closing. So it wasn't exactly... but. The thing, like you're saying there, I just can't understand how no one heard anything from next door. But but didn't Mrs. Johnson hear a thud that she she uh, that she thought was a door closing? Yeah, true. Um, she said she had two thumps about twenty five past eight that she attributed to her father taking his boots off in the next room. Now, as we know, I suppose John will know this if being into criminology, you know the time of death and that. It's highly unlikely that the murderer was still in the house at 25 past eight. And right. the, the neighbours next door, you know, the other side, Walter and Bertha home, they said they heard a noise about 25 to 7, 6.35. Now, Walter home said they usually, he used to have his tear about 20 to 7. Now, he said he heard a noise and it sounded, and his wife Bertha said, it sounded like someone falling next door, you know, because their front door abutted onto Wallace's front door. So they would hear anyone next door knocking or that. And she said, someone said, oh, no, it's someone at the Wallace's. Now, that would equate to Alan Close delivering the milk. Now, for the rest of the evening, the, the homes never heard any noise next door. So this dispels the myth to me that Qualtron knocked at the house. Yeah, that's a good point. But, um, you know, would you, like, if someone fell down, because that's really the only sound there was. He hit uh, Joy in the head with yep. a murder weapon that was never found um, and she falls to the floor um, and there was a rug on the floor, correct? And there was a Macintosh that uh, at some point and correct. probably after she was dead ended up uh, kind of stuffed under her side of sorts. But would that have been an audible noise? I mean, you're talking about a single fall. The blows to the head, I don't think, would have produced any sound that would have been heard much further than outside that, that room. Um, well, the floor in the front room was floorboards. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the 10 blows were less ferocious than the first one. And but she the first... fell onto the floor, did she? She fell into the fireplace and then was... Sorry, uh... yes. Yes, she fell onto the fire. But they believe the killer pulled it away and administered the other 10 while she was lying on the floor in the position that we see actually on the crime scene photographs, you know. So... Um, I mean, I allude to this. I mean, do you think you'd hear 10 blows being struck? I don't think I would, honestly. I think uh, the fall would have been audible to some extent. But mm. again, to someone next door, you're not going to hear a noise like a thump and go, oh, gosh, I hope the lady next door is not being murdered. You know, people are in the only people who would have heard it were the Johnstons. And yeah. in that moment, if they were in conversation, um, you know, then they certainly wouldn't have heard that. I don't think they would have heard the blows to the head. Um, it would have sounded almost like you were hitting a watermelon, maybe. Right, and, yeah. Uh, 
and that's only the first two blows. After that, the skull, skull would have softened up and the, the other blows were extraneous. But um, let me ask you about Lily Hall, because this is, I guess, you either believe her or you don't. And if you believe her, then Wallace um, had a conversation with a man um, on a walkway, I believe outside a church, uh, on the evening of the murder that Wallace did not later denied ever took place, which just from that little seed, you can grow a nice conspiracy theory or you can add a Confederate when combined with the fact that the murder weapon was never found. And a murder weapon would be easy to hide under your, your coat as you were leaving. I don't think Wallace was wearing gloves personally. And I do think he was probably naked and wearing a Macintosh when the crime was killed. Um, uh, so there wouldn't have been much other than the weapon to dispose of, except for towels. Um, I think he went upstairs and he he's a smart guy. He may have washed his hands in the, in the sink or what I think happened is he washed his hands in the toilet bowl. And because the police would be less likely to look for blood there. And in fact, I'm not sure they did remove that fixture and look for blood, but they, that is where they found uh, what you call the greatest red herring in the case, the, the blood clot on the bowl. But if he washed his hands, um, now he could have dried them on his clothes if he got him clean enough. He wouldn't have necessarily needed a towel because your clothes will dry. Um, and, uh, and then he left the house with the murder weapon, we, which, again, I say has never, we don't know what it is exactly. Um, it probably was the metal rod that the, the housemaid described seeing. And I think it was a mistake of Wallace's to denying ever having been aware of the existence of this metal rod. Yeah. Um, I don't even know why he would say that. Um, but uh, that was gone from the house and was probably the weapon that killed her. But he then goes to the money box, which is what, over seven feet off the floor on a shelf. He removes the money box um, takes four pound notes out, apparently takes them upstairs and hides them in a vase, not very well, and then tries to claim that four pounds are missing here and these are a different four pounds upstairs. But the four pound notes upstairs, one of them has a, a blood print, a bloody, like a thumbprint, might be a thumb, but it's a blood smear yeah. that is presumably Julia's. Um, it could have gotten it, it could have been there weeks earlier. Why would there be a blood stain on this note? I don't know. But uh, it's almost certainly Julia's, which is why I think he wasn't wearing gloves. And what I think may have happened is he hit the, the, and I want you to tell me what you think of this. He hits her in the head. She falls into the fire. He pulls her out. Um, he then sets the, because the first, you know, you've heard the saying, the first hit is free. When you hit someone in the head and kill them, if you can do it in one blow, there's no blood. So there would be no blood at this point. He sets the weapon down. He goes, and he gets the pound notes out, brings them back into the room, and then starts to worry, what if she's not dead? What if she's unconscious? What if, what if, grabs the, 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 the weapon and hits her 10 more times. Now her brains and blood are everywhere, and she is certainly dead. Um, somewhere during this, that Bill gets some blood on it, but he continues on with this plan. He, or, or he takes the Macintosh off and then when picking the bills back up, transfers some blood from the Macintosh onto the blood or onto the bills, goes upstairs naked, tucks the bills away, goes into the bathroom and cleans up, comes out, throws the bed around. He tries to make it look like in this one room of the house that there was a struggle of some sort, right? He's throwing pillows on the floor. 
and uh, and then he goes then he gets dressed in that room goes downstairs and and leaves all of this would have taken what do you think five to seven minutes or something like that it wouldn't take long for someone planning in advance this is not a this is a premeditated murder so um but it's kind of poorly carried out isn't it because the the money should have already been gone there should have been no blood on it it should have been in the vase upstairs um but at the same time he did get away with murder because although convicted by a jury it was pointed out there was not a single piece of evidence that pointed conclusively to wallace as the killer and and so this is why the case holds holds so much fascination um and uh and will continue to hold because if you feel sympathetic towards wallace you want to look for reasons uh where that he's innocent you want to build an argument and the raw material is there you have lily hall seeing him talking to someone that at least points to a confederate um you have the tight what seems like a tight time frame you have the johnson's hearing a thud like you're saying i i would have thought they heard something well if someone else feels that way they're going to look at the the thud happening after 8 p.m which more or less rules out wallace as the killer if if that's when she died it seems less likely at that point that he would have done it um so you have all this raw material but when you look at everything objectively it seems like she died shortly after or around 6.45 before mm -hmm. he leaves the house. She's already dead. Yeah. Um, the mm -hmm. medical evidence really seems to point to that as well. The doctors, what they have to say about it. And then he, and we talk about Lizzie Borden. There is an interesting, connect, uh, there is an interesting uh, correlation between the two cases. You have Wallace taking tram cars and really making himself known. Uh, he's wanting to make an impression on uh, the drivers and on the passengers. And then he's dropped off and he's talking to, to news agents. He's talking to police. He's knocking on doors. All of these people. And he is making a mental note of every single one of them. When he talks to the police, to the detail, every second of his time, he can name what he was doing, who he was talking to. Uh, when he looked at his watch, when he uh, just all this stuff in the Lizzie yeah. Borden case, um, Lizzie's uncle, uh, John Vinnicka Morris, on the, the day of the murder, goes out on the town, is hopping on tram cars, visiting stores and does the exact same thing, uh, mm. is making his presence known to people. And although John Vinnicka Morris is not a suspect of the Borden case, that behavior of his on that day has always made me wonder about him, not as the murderer, but was he involved? Did he know? Um, he was really trying to make himself look innocent. Um, and you have Wallace doing the same behavior here. And it's, it's those things. It's, it's not conclusive of his guilt, but it's one of like a hundred things that point towards his guilt. And then the one thing he overlooked is no one else in the world had a motive to come into his house and kill Julia. And if they wanted to do that, let's say this person did exist. The guy is out walking his rounds, what, four or five days a week? and go in and kill her and walk right out. They don't have to make a phone call to the chess club to get him out of the house the next day. They could have gone and killed her while he was at the chess club that night, right? Yeah, definitely. I want to um, make a couple of points, um, um, Tom, to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, and then we'll get Mark to comment. Um, with the uh, timing that you had um, described as far as um, 
when he removed the bills, it would have been after the the first blow was struck, and that's why he got blood on it and everything. Um, you have to remember that um, the milk boy was um, 30 minutes late um, in delivering the milk. So when Wallace arrived back at the house uh, around 6.05 or something, he expected the milk boy to have already been there or at least be there shortly afterwards. So he was kind of put in a position maybe to where he would have had to wait impatiently until the milk boy showed up um, until he could put his plan in place. Well, could he have gone ahead and moved the bills prior to the milk boy arriving and set the scene um, for the murder um, with with Julia being you know, unsuspecting about what he was doing. And you remember that, and Mark mentions this in his book, um, it's unclear as whether they slept in separate bedrooms, but Wallace said himself that every night he moved that cash box um, that contained money related to his um, insurance collection rounds into his bedroom every night. Now, whether he didn't explain why, um, it could be because he was afraid of a burglar or my belief is that more likely he didn't trust Julia, that he was keeping the money from his wife um, and they might have slept in separate bedrooms. Um, but um, so so him suddenly having to be rushed in this five to seven minute window is kind of odd. And then also, um, as far as the um, chess club phone call. Um, Qualtro set the appointment up um, for Wallace at 7.30. Um, when, um, why would Wallace um, make, if, if it was him making the phone call, establish an alibi for himself between maybe 7 and 7.30 um, on his way to visit um, Menlo's Gardens East when that when if he intended to commit the crime shortly after the milk boy showed up at 605 that alibi wouldn't work because he would still be at the house up until the point where he left for his 730 appointment so it seems like if Wallace either he was really bumbling and didn't, I mean, he didn't do himself any favors by, by if, if he was, in fact, the person who made the uh, Paltrow appointment, by making the appointment at 7.30 instead of 7 o'clock or 6.45 or something, if he believed the following day, he would be able to kill Julia more like around 6.15 or something after the milk boy had arrived and then left. Um. So there's, you know, there's some mis mystery there, um, uh, unanswered questions, you know, if you understand what I'm saying, it, it, yeah. he did a bad job of planning um, if um, the intention was to have her seen by the milk boy um, around 610, 615, and then you know, be, being able to murder her 
before he went to his supposed 7.30 appointment. Um, so anyway, um, Mark, what, uh, please add your thoughts on, on all of this. That's a good point, Jonathan, yeah. I can't account for that. You know, um, uh, yeah, apparently he was half an hour late, Alan Close, and um, it does seem rather odd for him to be, if it was Wallace who made the call, to, you see, I've always thought that, you know, he would have got into the house, as you're saying, about five, six, five minutes past six, and that's when he usually delivered his milk at the, uh, close delivered his milk at the, uh, at Wallace's house, so I can't account for that. That, that has got me stumped. Well, I, I would think that, uh, that John, uh, Wallace's setting it for 7.30 was to create a time when there would be nobody coming to the door because of, you know, he, that he, could, he wouldn't have wanted to set it earlier, but at 7.30 on, there would be no one coming to the door because if he murdered his wife and then left and someone came to the door five minutes later and there was no answer, uh, Wallace would understand that he would be the only suspect. Um, but by creating it 730, he, he creates a more of a larger amount of time where a killer could have gotten in the house. The funny thing is close coming 30 minutes late is really the thing that created all the doubt, um, mm-hmm. about Wallace's potentially being innocent that, that created the doubt that gave the defense, a, a, a really short timeline to go, look, yeah. so, you know, mm-hmm. Wallace may not have been the person to do this. The murder may have happened after he left the house um, because he does, Wallace's uh, alibi doesn't begin at 7.30. Of course, it begins at the moment he walks out his door and he might be seen by a neighbor leaving. And then he he walks to the tram, he gets on all of that. From that point forward, he is alibied for. So the argument being she was murdered while he was out being seen doing these things. But Jonathan's right. It's, uh, you know, it's not the cleverest um, plot to come up with. Um, and it never, you rarely is when someone is trying to commit a murder of this nature. They always miss out on significant details. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, the diaries are interesting to me. Wallace was a diarist. He had years worth of diaries. It occurred to me that did he manufacture these diaries? Um did he, uh, you know, because we, if he, the fact that he killed Julius suggests an unhappiness in his marriage that is not in the diaries. It's just not there. You know, that, I mean, they were grasping at straws, the prosecution, by pointing out an entry from 1928, three years before the murder, where they had like a minor argument over something, what she was buying, uh, newspapers. Newspapers, yeah. It was an, an, a minor argument over, that was the one thing they could find in the diaries to latch onto to go, oh, look, they had a non-perfect moment here in 1928. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, had he been plotting that many years in advance while keeping these diaries? Possibly. What do you so- think? Yeah, um- it's a good point. Yeah, um, I was going to say something else then. It's completely gone up my mind. Um, what you were saying before about... Um, we were talking about the timings and um, his planning or lack thereof in some cases. Well, I mean, with when he, um, you know, he, if, if he was the person who made the phone call from the call box, he would have no idea if he would be spotted doing that. Um, 
you know, there, it's odd for him to, while he was establishing his alibi, and, you know, the guy, um, if let's, he, there's just so many unknowns. When he first boarded the first tram, he didn't know that the conductor wouldn't tell him that there was no such place as to where he was going to. Correct. Um, and if and if the conductor would have said that to him, there is no Menlo's Gardens East, then he would have con- probably, I assume, given his later behavior, continued on the journey. Yeah. Ask the next next person who or would tell him the same thing. Yeah. I mean, the guy spent 90 minutes or something walking around this area being repeatedly told that there was no such place um, as um, Menlo's Gardens East and um, but but persisted in in this in this weird charade so if he was so uh, you know bound and determined to establish his alibi and you know make sure his timing matched the police officers by actually asking the police officer of the time and synchronizing their watches kind of a thing and um, then how would he not, you know, then, you know, what would have happened if he thought he might've been spotted making the phone call the day before to the chess club? Would that have? Well, know, he, he, mit- he minimized his, and I learned this from Mark's book. He minimized his, his chances of being uh, seen by choosing the closest call box to his house that was not inside a building it was out there by itself so he could stand back from it look around there weren't many cars driving around like there is now in 1931 a lot of foot traffic Uh, but you go into call boxes while you're in there you actually have privacy people really can't see you that well in there so he looks around it's clear he goes in he makes his call the experience takes longer than he expected uh, because of the connection issues and the multiple conversations he had with the operator and the manager, it took longer than he expected, but he was reasonably safe. But it's interesting that it was that call box, the closest, and because the defense made, you know, like, well, there were two other call boxes or so between his house and that one, but those were all like, what, in a library and a post office, mm-hmm. and people would have seen him coming in and out. So when you look at the exact call box that was used and when it was used, compared to when he arrived at the club it's like you know what are the odds that it's not Mm -hmm. him right especially when he hadn't been to the chess club for like the previous few months yeah two months yeah yeah i think that's what it is as well tom that when you look at all the evidence you know together as edward hammeter said the prosecution counsel at the trial the when you look at it all, puts it, it fits in like a jigsaw. I mean, we're led to believe that Qualtro, if it wasn't Wallace, would leave a message for him right at a chess club that he hasn't been to for two months. Right. And, and hope that, you know, the message would be delivered to Wallace. And not only that, he would carry it out the following evening. Let's talk about another motive that was proposed at the time. Um, and that, that I, when, I, when reading your book, I was like, am I reading this right? There was the idea that because he had kidney problems and had had a kidney removed, that this, that 
kidney issues cause people to go insane and commit murder. Right. Yep. What What's that about? Do you know any? Yeah. Well, Doctor Stanley Vionsworth was one of the doctors um, who was asked about this. He was from the Royal Southern Hospital in Liverpool when Wallace, you know, went in for with kidney problems in 1930. Because as you know, he'd, he'd had his kidney removed in 1907 in Guy's Hospital, Wallace, when he came back from China. And um, Dr. Unsworth stated that the condition of renal failure was as frequently associated with mental changes, mania, and temporary fits of insanity. <laughs> now, and, and another physician, I've just got the notes here, was William Johnson. And he thought that seven months after Wallace's admittance to hospital, he, Wallace may have been in a physically debilitating state that could be contributory to the development of mental disturbance. Now, killers, you know, whether it be Ted Bundy, Dharma, they're relatively sane, aren't they? While they're not killing. So is it possible that, you know, Wallace could have been insane when he was committing the murder. But what about the, but the premeditation argues against that. True. True. Yes. Yeah. Premeditated. Yeah. And, and there doesn't appear to, you know, he, he didn't appear to uh, devolve prior to that time. Like people saying, I noticed a decline in him. Yeah. Um, right. Cause this is a man, he did 560 house visits yeah. Uh, what was it? A month or um, a week? A week. I mean, that's which is astounding to me. Yeah. Uh, that means he was constantly in contact with the same people over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and none of them, even on the and to his credit, even on the day of the murder or the day before or the day, you know, he they were like, we didn't notice anything different about him. He was just nope. himself. Yeah. Um, but this whole time he was concocting, he was writing this detective story that he was planning on living out. And in his mind, he had done it perfectly. But I think part of that has to do with he doesn't understand how the police work. And that's where a lot of murderers go wrong is they don't yeah. understand. Yes. And the Liverpool police, I thought, did a terrific job. I mean, there's always going to be mistakes. But um, I thought they did a terrific job. They were very thorough. Like, we're again, removing the piping. Uh, they did all sorts, this little blood clot. And, and they, they did like multiple tests. Uh, this, was, this was forensics. I wasn't necessarily aware they had in 1931 until I read it uh, in your book. Um, but they were very thorough. And then the officer immediately noting the, that the, the cash box had been replaced on the shelf, seven feet above, no, and this is what a cop knows that Wallace didn't know, because a cop deals in real burglaries. Yeah, he does. A burglar doesn't come in, take the cash box, open it up, take the cash out, leaving a, a pound note in the box, by the way, uh, taking the money out, and then climbing back up on this high shelf to put it back over. Why would he do that when he just murdered a woman in the next room? And then not bother, and then he goes upstairs, throws bed sheets around which why is a burglar throwing bed sheets and pillows around when over here is a vase with according to wallace four pound notes sticking out of it visible um and then leave the house sight unseen so in wallace's mind this this had made sense and maybe there was maybe he, he was dissolving or something he wasn't seeing with clarity but i really think this is a guy who just didn't understand how police work and he thought he was smarter than them
Oh, yes, yes. It's funny you're saying that, though, Tom. That's what it was. It came back to me when you're saying about writing a detective story. Um, I know some of his books, some of uh, the John Bull articles he wrote, I know that they were, people say they were ghostwritten, but I viewed the, um, you know, the, the transcript, uh, the typescript of that, and they're certainly endorsed by Wallace because his signature's on them. Now, he says about, you know, he, he became, like, involved in one of the most famous cases in history, you know, after it. And he was saying that um, it's funny because uh, I looked, you know, in other words, he detested this sort of literature, if he called it that. Yet one of the photos in his John Bull article is a photo of Wallace sitting there reading Great Murder Mysteries by Guy B.H. H. Logan, which was the first Wallace account ever in 1931. Wow. And there's a photo of him reading that, you know. Wow, that's fantastic. I I didn't know that. So, uh, well, that there you go. And I also agree with you. I think uh, he was an egotist. He he was a narcissist. And he wasn't a bad writer. Um, His diaries (laughs) reflect that he wasn't a bad writer. He enjoyed writing. Why would he allow a ghostwriter? I don't think he would. I think he would want to write it himself. He wants to have, this is a guy who wants control. He would want to have control. So, and then the articles pretty much display a a guy who is pretty high on himself. And uh, I want to sidetrack for a minute though. Before I forget, there's a question I wanted to ask you um, about your book. Um. Adam Wood is a, you know, a good friend of ours, a good friend of Ripperologies. Uh, and how did you meet him? How did you find Mango Books or how did he find you? I'm curious about that. I just wrote some Mango Books. I've seen uh, the websites, Tom, you know, and it said right for us. So I thought, well, I'll write off, you know, and within, within days, like, you know, the old, the usual thing, like, you know, give us a bit of detail, the name, the temporary name of the book, you know, um, and a sample chapter, and I did, and Adam wrote back immediately and said, I liked it, can you, you know, and it evolved from there, which was nice. How? What was it like working with Adam putting the book together? What oh, was great. It, was it I a mean, long to experience, or? Well, sorry. Was it a long, did you guys work on the book together a long time in the um, editing process, or? Adam said that he didn't do that much editing on it, to be honest. I mean, when I sent him the complete manuscript, he said, no, it, you know, basically kept what I'd written in and just added the odd comment or comma or something. But um, I wrote to him about, um, I think it was around December 2018. And, um, you know, we were working over it over um, for the last, like, about two and a bit years. But I've got to be honest, I'd written to other publishers in the past, as you know, the, the old story about, like, rejections and that. And when, I, you know, it's always, like, disappointing isn't it but I've got to be honest that every one of them rejections I'm glad of because I couldn't have picked a better editor or publisher than Mango and Adam they've done a remarkable job on it yeah I think we're inclined to agree with that um I I own a lot of Mango books (laughs) um and it's funny when he initially started that I thought to myself well he's he's a friend of mine I'm going to support his endeavor but you know, forget that. The, re- the reality is he puts out amazing books that I would be buying regardless. Um, some of the absolute best nonfiction in recent years have come from Mango Books, and I'm absolutely including Checkmate among that. Uh, this is a, this is a book. I'm, uh, I'm not a psychic or anything or prescient, but I do believe it's going to outlive you. It's that good. 
I don't think anyone's going to top this book on the Wallace case in in the next generation or anything. I believe this is going to go on and continue. And because if it stays in print and there's an, uh, you know, especially if there's an ebook and maybe an audiobook edition, it's going to continue to build an audience for a very long time. So I want to commend you and congratulate you on the book and, um, and then, and Adam, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it was a great pairing, you two. And it was perfect for me, who's been waiting for a, a really good Wallace book ever since Murphy's came out. Uh, I must but, also add um, David Green as well, you know, the, uh, the indexer. Oh, that's right. He'd done an incredible job. I mean, I've, I said to Adam, I said, you know, how many people pick a book up, right, and just take for granted an index? But I, I've honestly, in the past, even before they worked on my book, the, I've always been in order of people who index books because I think, where do you start? And it is an art form. So I would like to include David there as well, David Green. He's done a brilliant job on it. I know that <laughs> very extensive. Um, you know, if you just scroll through it, you're just, I mean, it's huge and it's extensive and it's necessary uh, for those of us who want to go back and, and refer to something. Um but I'm going to shut up for a minute. Jonathan, uh, you have some reader questions, I believe. Um, yeah, I do. I touched on a couple of the, the um, points that a few casebook posters had made. One being the, um, the time issue between setting the um, Qualtro appointment at 7.30 um, when um, Wallace would have intended to leave you know, between 6.05 and 6.30 maybe. Um, and then the other one being the, um, uh, if you would have been possibly uh, spotted in a phone box. Um, I do want to ask about um, Richard Perry um, and his, he seems to be, um, if it wasn't Wallace, Perry is the, the, the chief suspect, it's seemingly. Um, and um, I don't recall this being mentioned in your book when you discussed Perry, um, but you go through uh, Perry's subsequent criminal record. He was a, mainly a car thief um, until he was um, accused of rape, essentially, um, a, a date rape type of a situation. Um, and... Um, um, so no like real violence in his past until that point in time. But um, apparently, so um, Wallace, you know, claims that he was asked by the police to provide names of everybody who um, might, Julia might have let into his house. And I don't believe that that list exists anymore, but um, you say that he gave maybe about 14, 14 or so names yeah. Yes. Perry being the chief um, one. Um, and then he also listed friend, other close friends and family members and people who are more unlikely to have committed the crime. But it seemed like Wallace um, was wanting to point the finger at Perry. Um, and, um, and then in, in his um, John Bull article, I think, uh, he didn't name Perry as as the person who is the murderer, but but he said that he has a name um, of the murderer, but he was just refusing to give it. So the police uh, cleared Perry. So they say he had an alibi established with um, 
I don't know if it was his fiance at the time or something. Um, but then later, um, from what I read, um, after his marriage dissolved, the woman who um, supplied Perry with the alibi on the on the night, evening of the murder recanted that alibi and said that she um, that that she uh, lied basically um, to account for Perry's whereabouts on the evening of the murder. And then there were other circumstantial things like supposedly he was found washing his car out and. I think she also claimed that um, he was, he had a pair of like really bloody gloves or something like that. So you do find um, Richard Perry to be the, the chief suspect, either doing it all by himself or maybe even working in tandem with Wallace and, and planning and committing the crime. So can you go into your, what leads you to believe that, that Fingering Perry is just a non-starter in this one. Well, I think first and foremost, Jonathan, uh, he did have several alibis for the night of the murder, you know, like you said. The one with Lily Lloyd, his girlfriend, was for later in the evening from about 9 o'clock till 11, 11.30. But for the time about the murder, which would be between half six and half eight, he was in the company of three people in a house in Knocklade Road, which is in the Club Moor area of Liverpool, where Wallace conducted his rounds. Uh, Mrs. Olivia Bryan, her name was, B-R-I-N-E. He was in, I think she was about 42 years of age. He, he was in her house in 43 Knocklade Road, in her company and her daughter's company, her 13-year-old daughter, and her 17-year-old nephew, Harold Dennison. Now, I've read both of their statements, Mrs. Bryan's and... Um, Denison's and both of them say that Wallace was in their company from uh, Wallace Paddy was in their company from between 5.30 to 8.30 in the evening so that immediately to me goes it wasn't him in the house and uh, didn't Wallace one of the people on his rounds one of his customers uh, I think were, were talking to him about the murder and who might have committed it and he said a friend of Julia's and then the and the woman said, "Oh, like a someone, you know, a friend of yours and Julia's." He goes, "No, a friend of Julia's." Yeah, that's right, Tom. And uh, so that wouldn't. It seems like Wallace, you know, maybe wasn't trying to point the finger of suspicion at anyone in particular. No, but because what friend of Julia's was there that was not a friend of his? Exactly. I mean, exactly. I know. Um, in 1933, there was an article by. It said Wallace. Uh, named me with an exclamation mark and it's anonymous but written by you know a reporter and I'm pretty sure it's Parry and he says that you know he went to Wallace's house one day and Julia asked him in and he said <laughs> Parry said of all the women I've seen she's the least attractive so I mean you know but um, regarding um also, for the night of the telephone call, you know, the call that the cultural call was made, they asked also uh, Josephine Lloyd, Lily Lloyd, and her mother, you know, about the party call that night. And Mrs. Lloyd said, yes, he came here about 7.15, which would tally in right at the time he was supposed to be in the call box, you know. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, uh, another um, question, um, this kind of feeds off of the Perry's description of Wallace, uh, Julia being what the most unattractive person he's ever seen or something. Mm. Um, there, um, so normally in domestic murder cases, um, the, uh, the marriage of the husband and wife is, is um, you know, thoroughly examined, um, or, or at least an attempt is made to, um, to establish what kind of relationship that they have. And you had um, mentioned earlier that, you know, and you re repeat throughout the book, um, emphasizing that the police really did not look at any other suspect but the husband in this case. Um, but it doesn't seem like they really got a clear idea of what kind of relationship um, and what kind of marriage the Wallaces had. Um, similar to the Crippen case, um, they just allowed the, the uh, defendant to, um, to, to uh, describe, uh, you know, their, their relationship in Wallace's case. It was a very nice, loving relationship. They were very close, you know, one, two peas in a pod kind of a thing. In the Crippen case, he, he maligned and, you know, um, and characterized Cora Crippen as this kind of badgering, you know, um, nag who spent way too much money and was probably having an affair and on and on and on. And that's kind of the perception of Bell Elmore that's, that's latched on and has persisted throughout the years. So it kind of um, surprised me that there wasn't a clear, really a clear sense of what kind of marriage the Wallaces had. Um, and then there's this um, question of um, her age. So um, he, he basically said that they were about the same age, 52 or something, if I remember correctly. Um, but then a birth certificate was discovered. And this is, this is a listener question that goes into this. There's a birth certificate discovered that, um, that states that she was something around 17 or 18 years older than him. Um, unusual to, to say the least that, you know, of a, of a relationship where a man would marry um, a woman that much older than him. Her gravestone, I think, uh, her headstone has them of about the same age. Yeah. So what do we know, how, how reliable do you think is the evidence that Julia was almost two decades older than, than William Wallace? Um, and what are, what are your thoughts on that? If she, if she was in fact nearly two decades older than him, um, was she deceiving him or do you think he might've been aware of the age difference and why would he misrepresent that? And, um, you know, someone has suggested that it might've even been a motive had, had he discovered that she was lying about her age that could have been motivated him to kill her for, for some reason. So. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, we have to look at it, Jonathan. Um, do you think, personally, do you think he, he would have known? Do you think a person would know if their partner was 17 years older than him? You would think so, yeah. You'd think so, well, wouldn't he, you? He knew her family, right? I mean, her sister, yeah. Uh... 
Mm-hmm. Amy, yeah. I mean, through them, it, it surely he, you know, they. I mean, it wouldn't have been a family secret her age, right? No, it wouldn't. I mean, I've got a birth certificate. It's it's uh, 28th of April, 1861. You know, but she continued in one of her um, in one of the you know where the um, what's it called? She entered it, you know, on the uh, local registry under the name Jane Dennis. In 1911, you know, the census records show her as Jane Dennis living in St. Mary's Avenue. Uh, sorry, five, five Dragon Parade in Harrogate in the north of England. And she list, puts her name on it as 32 when she was actually 50. And her birthplace being in Hexham in Sussex, which is about... 300 miles away from where she was born. So, I mean, is that a criminal offence as well, filling a, a census, you know, your record in with false information in it? But she was, so she was kind of living in a, she might have been vain or delusional, not not like, uh, you know, delusional in the sense that she was actually psychotic, but uh, maybe vain. I wondered if Wallace, hit through his vanity when they got married, didn't make the suggestion to her that you need to say you're my age so that I'm not embarrassed by you or, you know, something yes, like that. Yes, yes. I can see and, you know, and in his, um, you know, in his, one of his statements, his, his first statements, he says, like, I'm 52 years of age, you know, my wife, who I believe is the same age, in his statements, you know. But it could be, Tom, it could be that he's like, you know, lower your age a bit. <laughs> or, he, yeah, or he at least went along with it happily. You know, if she wanted to pass herself off as younger... Yeah. And maybe he was like, yeah, I want to go along with that because I don't want to have to explain to people why I married a woman 17 years my senior. Um, you know, and he was he was not a when it came to their relationship, he didn't appear to be particularly detail oriented. Uh, you you talk in your book about a time where he said, my wife came to me and said that yesterday was our anniversary. And I thought back fondly on our marriage. But it's like. You know, she was probably came to you and said, do you know that yesterday was our anniversary and you did absolutely nothing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's um, a suggestion from the listener question that maybe James Murphy, who I believe discovered the, the birth certificate, might have gotten the wrong um, Julia Dennis. And and um, and so this um, reader wonders if um, if maybe they were closer in age and that this uh, birth certificate showing the 18 year gap um, is for the wrong person. Um, I suppose that it could be easily established through just looking through the census records, mm. who who is living at the house, given her siblings are known and her parents are known, yeah. you know, in order to establish like um, whether or not that birth certificate applies to the person we're talking about. Has that been done? You know? um, well, on the uh, certificates I've got, Jonathan, it says that the, the address is Broomcliffe House in East Halsey, which is in North Allerton in Yorkshire, you know, in England. And that's the same address of where she was born. And, uh, you know, we're uh, relatives and that, so it's definitely the same person. And you can look at, you know, logically speaking, if she were 53 instead of 70 at the time of her death, how would that have made her mother at the time of her birth, you know, and, and her sisters and the difference in age in that way. And 
um, you can come to the conclusion that yeah, she had to have been seventy. But that is a, John's, Jonathan's question is a good one. Just yeah. because James Murphy says it, has anyone else mm-hmm. dug into that and said okay? You know, and presumably, uh, and it's been a while since I've read Murphy's book, but I think he did that before he published his book. He got the certificate and he looked at census. He implied common sense and concluded this birth certificate is the right Julia Wallace. And yes, she was 70 at the age of her death, Um, which also means she was in relatively good health, according to her autopsy. Uh, She certainly Mm -hmm. would have outlived her husband had she not been murdered, um, probably by quite a good distance, considering he died, what was it, less than two years after he was, uh, his, his uh, conviction was quashed? Yes. Has it, has it been considered that it could be um, an older close family member with the same name, perhaps? Um, because if you look at some of the um, families of like the Ripper victims, sometimes if a child died very young, they used to name a younger child the same name. Um, I've seen that once or twice. So that, that's another possibility, I think. Uh, she was the second of seven children. And I don't think any of them, John, would bore that or, you know, I mean, that we know of, you know, it's that she was the only one called Julia, like, you know. Mm, okay. And um, can also, this is also based on a listener question, um, the role of Amy, um, the sister-in-law um, in this case is a pretty odd one. Um, and um, I sent you, um, because it was really long and, and uh, detailed um, question about, Wallace gives several versions of the events um, as far as when he um, described to Julia the um, phone call that he received in his, in his setting up the appointment with Paltrow. Um, whether it occurred at tea time or dinner time. And then when, when Julia, uh, Amy went and uh, visited Julia on the afternoon of the murder. Um, and, and that's when a- Amy um, was made aware, uh, Julia told Amy about the phone call. So Julia says, I mean, so Amy, so Amy claimed but um, but their relationship, uh, Wall, uh, Williams and Amy's relationship seemed to be an odd one, um, and um, and that kind of throws some suspicion upon Amy as to whether maybe she had foreknowledge of what was going on, or maybe aided Wallace um, in the cover up um, of the crime to the best that she could. Um, he did botch botch a lot of it, but could, what do you think about um, her um, and and William Wallace's um, relationship, and maybe how that could play into some kind of conspiracy? It's a strange one, Jonathan, because you'd have thought, wouldn't you, that she'd be in the far the far east with her husband jo- Joseph, you know, and she's living over in England, like you know, with um, their son Edwin. I know. Um, I mean, he said people uh, in the past have, have read people saying that, like, maybe he didn't tell Julia, but like you said, she did. Julia did tell um, Amy that he was going to make the visit to Mosley Hill that night. Um, I don't know. I mean, people say, could he have been having an affair with Amy? I, I, I don't think so. 
Um, she he went to stay with her, right? Isn't wasn't it at Amy's that he went to um, when he he wanted to go back to to the murders? Like he wanted to stay in the house, which was kind of bizarre, you know. That um, he wanted to go direct after he was questioned by the police. He wanted to go directly back home. Um, um, but then he ended up staying with Amy, um, I believe, instead. Um, until they allowed him to eventually return to the house. I think he might have returned for a short period of time until he was convinced to, to move out. Um, but, um, and then and then I also found it interesting regarding Amy that, that um, she requested a Julia's fur coat as, um, as one of the possessions that she wanted returned her whether it was her fur, fur coat or julia's i'm not sure um but that that's kind of interesting that yeah. she would um pick you know ask well, funny, to have a fur coat returned to her well the funny thing is jonathan um amy's sister uh, julia's sister was called amy as well it was a different amy oh a different amy i was getting you lived confused. in denmark Saddestown in brighton and um I might be getting mixed up here because there's two Amy's and one of them. I think it was um, the one from um, Julia's sister. Oh, okay, that one at the fur coat, and then the Amy that that William Wallace went to stay with, and the one who met met with Julie on the afternoon of the murder was married to William's brother. Yeah, Joseph. Yes. Yeah, okay. but you're right. Yeah, he he did. He wanted to go home that night. You know, the night of the murder, back to Wolverton Street, and the police, like you said, and the police said, "No, nah, it's out of the question." So he did end up moving to um, Amy's flat in um, Bullet Road in the um, Wavertree area of Liverpool, and like you said, he stayed there till well, he was arrested there on the second of February. Um. Let's. Uh, another so there's two more things that I found really interesting um and then we'll start to wrap it up um one is um that after the conviction was overturned um usually like I think of a case like like the Borden um, murder case or um like an OJ Simpson type deal when you know, you're suspected of killing your wife or in the Lizzie Borden's case, murdering her parents. You know, Lizzie was found not guilty. Um, she, she moved in with her sister, but um, kind of, um, I don't know if Lizzie Borden was so much ostracized from the town of, of Fall River, but but she essentially lived in somewhat seclusion. Um, and then we all know when O.J. Simpson was acquitted from of the murder of his wife, um, he was ostracized by most everybody. Um, and, um, but the, those who knew William Wallace um, seemed to welcome him back all right. You know, they wanted to get him back to work. He went on his rounds for a few times. His co-workers, now I'm saying, Wallace, um, when he went back to work after his, the conviction was overturned, um, the, uh, his clients didn't want anything to do with him. And that made uh, Prudential Insurance Company kind of give him an office job. But I did find it kind of interesting that, that the reaction of the people who knew him in his line of work, his coworkers, um, 
seem to believe in his innocence um, and, and in, in that they accepted him back and gave him, you know, gave him his old job back or, and then a, a different job in the same company. Not your typical reaction of someone who everyone might assume is guilty, but then just uh, happened to be acquitted at trial or get their conviction overturned. He didn't seem to have a black mark on him um, like you would expect. No, although he was, he said in his um, writings, you know, that um, the people at the, the uh, co-players at the chess club, he was shunned there. And, you know, mm. around, like you're saying, Jonathan, you know, there would be like gossips saying that like, oh, he's a wife murder. And, you know, children, which children are going to do, aren't they? You know, shouted abuse at him. And that's when he moved across the River Mersey to uh, Bromborough, a place called Bromborough, where he lived for the last couple of years of his life. Well, I think it was actually kind of similar to Lizzie Borden. When Lizzie Borden was on trial, all the women in Fall River, the church group she belonged to, the charities, uh, rallied around her, um, contributed money, it, very similarly to the way uh, the Prudential did for Wallace. Uh, and then, and unlike Wallace, Lizzie was found not guilty. Of course, Wallace was found guilty and his conviction later quashed, but Lizzie was found not guilty, but it was still understood, okay, they couldn't prove the case, but she probably did it. And those same people who rallied around her during the trial, now that she was a free woman, they backed away from her. Uh, you know, and I think uh, part of that is society. And to us, these were both long ago, far ago times, but there is a difference between 1892 uh, you know, rural America or small town America and 1931 Liverpool. That's like 50 years apart. So in Lizzie's case, okay, she is out. She does have a mark on her. She is branded. Therefore, you don't want to be seen associating with her, regardless of whether you think she's guilty or innocent. In Wallace's time, that may not, and he was a man, that, that makes a difference. So his colleagues at the Prudential uh, wanted to keep him employed and do what they could. But yeah, the chess club, they, they knew that he had used them as part of his ruse in killing his wife. Of course, they're not going to want to have anything to do with him. Uh, that makes sense. And the people on his rounds uh, had turned a cold shoulder on to him, didn't want him coming to their house, understandably, uh, because whoever killed Julia still wasn't captured, right? So he wasn't innocent. He was just not in prison. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. So, uh, but yeah, the abuse, he had to move away. Uh, Lizzie Borden sh could have and probably should have moved away, but she was stubborn and chose to stay in Fall River and make them put up with her. Uh, you know, and then OJ, of course, is just OJ. It's a, you know, it's OJ. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I actually see a lot of similarities between the two, but I also think that Wallace being a man might have allowed him to get along a little bit better than Lizzie Borden did. Mm -hmm. So really, uh, as I was reading the book, um, the Borden case, um, it did remind me a, a lot of the Borden case, like it did Tom. I mean, even even down to like the window washers being <laughs> present present on um, both sides, you know, um, around the times of the murders. You know, just the hustle and bustle of the street and the visitors at the doors and people yep. washing windows and and things like that. It was reminiscent of the Borden case. Um, it's funny how so much history we learned. You and me, Jonathan and Mark and everybody. One of the things about these classic murder cases is uh, they're a microcosm of a, of a place and a time. 
because generally life's just going on and there's newspaper articles about leaders of the world and war and this and that. But you take the Wallace case and through that lens, it's like a single day in the life of Liverpudlians in 1931 is analyzed to the second. Mm. And through that you're reading and you're learning about things like how milk was delivered and uh, you know how newspaper boys did their thing. You're learning about chess clubs and phone booths and just variety and tram cars. It's, it's mm-hmm. an interesting, and I've always thought this about True Crime, the Jack the Ripper case, you can name any classic case. Uh, uh, you know, Lizzie Borden, we learn about a, a very particular day in the life of people in Fall River, Massachusetts, 1892. And um, to me, that's one of the fascinating things about quote unquote classic true crime cases. It's, it's only often through murder that such details are recorded and analyzed uh, so minutely. You know, what do you guys think of that? I think that's absolutely true. Um, Mark's book, you know, um, even though, um, you know, there are, it's most all contained in footnotes, is kind of like an A to Z of of the people associated with this crime. And and in the beginning of Mark's book, you do get um, a lot of the, the social history of Liverpool at the time, you know. Um, even talking about the football clubs there and, um, and and suicide, everyone committed suicide. Like that, he talks about. There's like one street, and he's like, "This person killed themselves. This person, you know, huffed right. gas. This person jumped from a building." And it's like, wow, you know. And it reminds you, we live in 2021, and we think, oh, you know, there's a lot of shit in the world, and you know, you you. Simpler times, right? 1931, simpler times. Until you actually read about 1931 and everyone's throwing themselves off buildings or huffing gas. Um, and then you go, okay, you know, and also dentistry, we have that. Uh, that's a nice thing. But uh, yeah, you know, and you talk in your book about the influenza, you're talking about a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> going on at the time. Quite up, quite up, it's uh, at the time. Yeah, that was, I was really interested by that. I was like, why was he at his chess club? He should have been wearing a mask. Um, He should have been been quarantining. What is going on here? And uh, yeah, so. Well, that's it. You know, um, when you're saying about Paddy before, Jonathan being one of the uh, suspects, another one was Joseph Marsden, Joseph Caleb Marsden. Now, he was another co-worker with Paddy, who Wallace mentioned. And well, when I found the records, you know, the police statement said that he was in ill in bed with influenza at the time of the murder. Mm-hmm. And, and yep, doesn't Marsden make appearances in later books on the case? I'm, I'm thinking, wasn't it Roger Wilkes? Uh, what wasn't Marsden names as a sometimes accomplice with Perry? Yes, he has been some. Um, they were the two names really that you know were put forward. Even Wallace mentioned him. You know, Marsden. Yeah. He was thirty at the time. And um, he was the other one put forward as probably the major suspect with Paddy. Well, um, Tom, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, The murder weapon. Wallace apparently felt confident 
when planning the murder and executing it, that he could disappear that murder weapon in a way that would not come back to haunt him. And in that respect, he appears to have been uh, correct in that the murder weapon was never found. You you do address, you know, those of us who have read Roger Wilkes's uh, book might be laboring under the impression that the murder weapon was indeed found in the house years after. Can you talk about that for a minute? Um, yes, of course, Tom. Um, well, the police, like you are saying before, the police, you know, they were thorough, thorough with it. And they actually removed the fireplace, you know. Jonathan Goodman says that sometime in the 30s, that a few years after it, workmen moved, you know, with, were replacing the fireplace and that they found an iron bar that had slid down the back. But there's no proof to, um, there's nothing to corroborate this. The police did actually empty the room, you know, at the time of the investigation. And, you know, they never found any bar in the house. But like you said, um, I think without doubt it's been the iron bar that Mrs. Draper said, you know, the Charlie used to be on the, um, it used to be by the fire. I think it's definitely been that. And do you have any, I mean, I assume the police, you know, here's the deal. Wallace gave them a route. He said, here's the route I traveled after the murder. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, or not after the murder, but when he left the house to go mm-hmm. to Men Love uh, Avenue. But so uh, surely the police didn't take him at his word and only follow that route. They, they would have checked because I'm guessing since he disposed of the murder weapon en route, whatever route he gave them was not entirely accurate. Does that no, make sense? Good. And that yeah, whatever maybe. route he didn't give them that would have led to the, the tram car on that route, somewhere the murder weapon was disposed of. In a, you know, you talked about in the book, the ground was frozen. It was very cold because the logic is he'd just shove it into the dirt somewhere. Yeah. Yes. He must have... He had chosen wherever this murder weapon was disposed of. He would have chosen in advance a place to dispose of it. Oh yeah. Did the, is there any record of what the police did in looking for this murder weapon? Yeah. Well, next to uh, Wolven Street is a cul-de-sac, as you probably know from the book. And there's a waste ground at the bottom of it. It's still there now. And they did actually sift all that area. But also on the other side, there's a brick wall that's still there that used to be the Belmont Road Institute. Well, the police. The police looked up, the, un, the uprooted shrubbery and everything and dug, dug around there and couldn't find anything of it. But like you're saying, I mean, the route he took, um, I suppose there's, a, there's only so far they can search on a route, isn't it? I mean, could they have put it down a grid anywhere between any of the three tram stop, you know, any three, any of the three tram stops that he, he you know, was at? Could he have? I mean, it could have carried it in his coat, I suppose, and disposed of it. Um, There would have probably been blood on the murder weapon while at the house, Uh, so that would have. That's where I'm thinking there might have been a towel too, and uh, where he cleaned them off in the toilet, uh, dried it with the towel, wrapped it in the towel, put it inside of his coat. Um, and if we're not talking about a large metal bar, it could have traveled with him on the trams all the way across town and been disposed of in a public trash bin, uh, none of which were, of course, to ever search. No. Um, but I'm thinking that that is the one element where he did plan it out in advance yes. and he succeeded, in, he succeeded in disappearing that murder weapon for all time. Yes. Well, in James Murphy's book, he says about the uh, there's a pumping ground area that used to be up 
in, in Mossley Hill area. And James Murphy says it, it might have been deposited there. I mean, the times, like everything in this case, it's all about times, isn't it? And, you know, he could have easily have slipped down a street that was on the route, but just took him enough far out where he could have deposited it somewhere else there, like you're saying, you know, um, that will never be found since. Didn't James Murphy also talk about he might have used a cab instead of a, uh, like a, a, a train? Well, the um, the cabs, the, the police investigation did actually include you checking local cabs, cab places, not, you know, and he couldn't find that he hired one that night. I mean, it's, and the second tram he got, um, he definitely boarded that at 7.06. Right. At but I mean, like maybe coming back home. Oh, coming back. Oh, well, lots of good points because the police didn't seem to investigate his return. They just took his word for it that he took the same trams back, you know, in a reverse order. Because if he could have taken a car back, that would have shaved off, shaved off a lot of time. And it's not impossible. He then could have killed Julia at 8.25 and then made oh. it appear that he was arriving home 20 minutes later when the Johnston saw him. Right. Hmm. Yeah. That's the, the, the thing. There's a lot of possibilities. All roads, though, in that Wallace did this, you know, I think. Uh, and that's if you're applying, like in your case, a lot of hard research, but also just kind of logic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Logic. Like, um, and as far as the murder weapon goes, this is another, like Tom was mentioning earlier about um, um, Wallace thinking that he was smarter than the police, even though he didn't realize that the police would know that a burglar wouldn't set the um, cash box back up on a seven and a half foot high shelf. Um, it's the, and, the, and you mentioned this in your bookmark, the same goes for um, uh, taking the murder weapon away with them. If this was a, a home invasion attempted burglary that turned into a murder, um, in um, cases um, of that sort it, that were somewhat random, um, then the police knew at the time that, that typically the murder weapon would have been left behind. Hmm. Um, so, so taking the murder weapon um, from the scene of the crime um, itself points towards um, a level of premeditation that, that yeah. um, That's a great point, put, John. put on yeah. Wallace's guilt. Although he succeeded in disappearing the murder weapon, like like you point out, Jonathan, that wasn't necessarily to Wallace's advantage because all that did was kind of make him look even uh, all the more guilty, uh, especially if it was a weapon found in the house. Now, if she had been shot and the Wallaces were not known to own a gun and the gun was not found, then you then you could reasonably argue that mm-hmm. the uh, killer brought the gun with him and left with it as you would a gun you would take a gun with you but if you come into a house you grab a fireplace uh, implement and you strike someone dead why would you take that metal bar with you yes Um, but wallace thought he was being clever by saying if the weapon's not there that means the murderer must have taken it with him and then that couldn't be me that was his thinking and uh and it kind of backfired on him and it's also uh, you know regarding party tom that, you know, he would confess a murder to a third party. I just do not believe it. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, Perry was not a good guy. I think his subsequent history, uh, you know, he was a very young man. What was he, 22 at the time of the Wallace murder? 
Um, but he lived a long life after, and that was, and and not a lot of that was a good life. And so people looking back, because uh, I always say about ripperology, the one advantage we have is the element of 2020 uh, vision. We we can look back and, you know, at, at, in 1931, you couldn't see beyond 1931. You could only no. see that. Now we can look back and look at the way people lived the rest of their lives. And in Perry's case, you can look at his later life and go, yeah, you know, this could have been a guy who would kill Julia Wallace to steal a bunch of money that he believed that he would know Wallace had in his house. He would know where it was. There is certain logic in that argument, but of course that logic fades away when you look at the facts of the case and, you know, none of that makes sense with an outside intruder. So that clears Perry, but um, it, it does make sense that, that if there is an alternate suspect, it might be Perry. Of course, other people suggest that Wallace and Perry partnered up uh, as Confederates uh, to commit the crime or that Wallace and Amy partnered up as Confederates. Uh, the, the Perry argument, I guess, a lot of that comes from Lily Hall's evidence of seeing Wallace talking to someone uh, on his way back from the murder. But like you say in the book, if you step back and, you know, why would Wallace deny meeting somebody while walking back? If he was meeting the Confederate, oh, my dogs are going to bark. If he was meeting a Confederate, why would he do it in an open space? And why at that time? That doesn't even make sense. You know, why before he's even discovered the murder? So you conclude in your book that Lily Hall was either mistaken, um, possibly to the day, or she was mistaken about the individual she saw, or that maybe she just kind of was making stuff up a little bit. I don't think she made it up because I, I think no. if she made it up, it would have been a little more, there would have been more detail. Uh, more elaborate. She yeah, she would have, and, and, and after her first statement, she would have been, oh, I remembered something else. I remembered something else. Yeah. So I don't think she made it up, but I think she was either, I think most likely she was mistaken about who she saw. Yes, uh, definitely. Probably not even the day, probably about who she saw. Yeah, because she's seen the police a few about a week after the... <laughs> Yeah, uh, correct. This... And she'd been well, sick herself, I believe. Yeah, right. She had. She had. Right. Well, um, Paddy, you know, the, the idea that he went to the garage and had his car cleaned out by John Parks. Um, the thing with that, Jonathan, is that the police patrols right throughout the night were all over the area. You know, when people say, oh, he... Now, I don't believe for a second he'd park his car outside his girlfriend's house after committing a murder and then suddenly drive along a heavily policed area to um, a garage and then confess his part in a murder. I'm not saying John Parks is a liar. I think I think the thing is there, Tom, is that maybe Wallace, uh, maybe Parry was playing a practical joke on him. You think so? Possibly. Because I don't know, I, 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 you know, I know you, 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 you want to not call someone a liar, but in these true crime cases, there are just so many people who have stories to tell. I mean, you know, as ripper, ripperologists, there are so many people like we have a shawl that we have to deal with from time to time that a cop had a bloody shawl mm-hmm. uh, that supposedly belonged to a ripper victim and it did not. And uh, somewhere along the way in that family the Shaw belonged to someone came up with a story relating it to the Ripper uh, maybe innocently 
and it was just supposed to be shared amongst family. Um, and I wonder if Parks didn't invent a story just to impress uh, his coworkers or colleagues. And then someone told a journalist and that journalist confronted Parks and he couldn't deny it. And yeah. he just had to live with that story. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, yes, I say that in the boot, Tom. But, you know, I mean, I don't like calling the man a liar. But, right. You know what I mean? But, yeah. Well, then we also have in the Ripper case, um, you know, uh, eyewitness testimony and she she um, testified in the, at the inquest who claims to have seen Mary Kelly on um, the morning after she was murdered. Um, and she was adamant that she saw this um, as similarly to um, him being spotted um, by the witness um, Wallace being spotted. Um, speaking to a confederate in the in the park, um, but and but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't she, didn't wasn't her time the time of her sighting of Wallace? Wasn't it like more like around nine twenty? Well after like huh? I think it was eight thirty five, wasn't it? Just uh, well, it seems the- like um, she then got the times wrong, or she started to get we, confused. And you're right, don't you? Wrong. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right, Jonathan. She said um, she said it was twenty ten. About twenty to nine, twenty-five to nine. But at the trial, she said twenty past nine. Yeah, that's right. And she had the day wrong. She said the day wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She, uh, of course, she was probably nervous. You know, a young woman being in front of Mm -hmm. these men, and you know, and wigs and stuff like that. And yes, uh, let's talk about Oliver real quick. Oh, do you need? Would you like to take a break, Mark? before we finish up because jonathan and i have at various times gotten up and taken no no i'm okay thanks tom all right um oliver let's talk about the oliver what one of the things that struck me was in the trial i didn't think oliver necessarily did the best job in defending wallace uh i certainly thought his summing up was very poor if the jury was already biased against wallace um, that summing up would not have done anything to ter- change the, their minds. And then I watched Oliver's performance at the appeal, and I thought that was spectacular. I thought, okay, now the guy is suddenly um, a, a devoted defense attorney, mm. and he did a great job at at the uh, the uh, um, appeal in front of those uh, justices, and he won. You know, but also I want to say I didn't think the prosecution did a particularly great job during the trial either. May, they obviously didn't need to, but um, they kept harping again on the the Macintosh, they, yes. on, on things that were not that really just would fall apart on examination. Um, yes, they did, but they did point out some very specific and important things, such as the the cash box. To me, that's the big thing. Mm-hmm. If Wallace had not put that cash box back on the shelf. Um, that just closes the deal. It had to be Wallace. Uh, then the four pound notes, the guy was so greedy. He couldn't even throw away the pound notes, just get rid of them. But he didn't, he didn't want to lose his money. So he moves it upstairs and tries to claim those were different pound notes. Um, and I want to point out for people listening that in the book, Mark actually gives us the serial numbers on the four pound notes in question. That's how uh, thorough and diligent the research is. It reminded me of Adam Wood's book, Swanson, 
um, where he goes into a very evocative detail on buildings that Swanson, and it's not boring at all. It's extremely interesting stuff, but that's how interesting, and I can see why Adam, because Adam is the same way as you in that he's very, very detail-oriented, so I can see why your book immediately appealed to him and he wanted to publish it. Um, but to go back to Oliver, uh, not the best defense attorney. Uh, Justice Wright was interesting in that um, in delivering his um, orders to the jury, he didn't say find Wallace not guilty, but he repeatedly kept saying things like, now, if the prosecution didn't do this, which they clearly hadn't done these things, like find a piece of evidence that points conclusively to the guilt of the defendant, then you must find him not guilty. And then the jury's like, nope, and he's guilty. Uh, and you also quoted a, a later commentator, I forget who it was, uh, who noted that he should have been found not guilty. But the jury should have delivered a verdict of not guilty, but Wallace was in fact guilty. And I have yes. to agree with that. I actually agree with that. I think that they didn't meet their burden. Um, Wallace had done a good enough job, not all on his own, partly because of uh, close of there being enough reasonable doubt that a jury should have found him not guilty. I agree with the, the judges who quashed that verdict. And yet at the same time, I'm convinced he was guilty. So that's an interesting contradiction that I think uh, we all share. Yes, but I think the thing there, Tom, is a lot of people say that it's like the Scottish verdict, not proven. Right, right. Yeah, he's guilty, but they didn't prove it. And that's, prove it, yeah. that's why it's murder scot-free, in fact, is one of the books that has been written on the case. That's the yes. name of it. Right. Um, yeah. But that's, uh, you know, Jonathan was talking before we started recording that he's thought it was interesting. The Wallace case isn't as well known uh, among Brits as the Lizzie Borden case is legendary here in America. Even people who couldn't tell you the details. They know the name Lizzie Borden, and they know oh. it. They, they believe an axe is involved. They know the nursery rhyme. It's one of the only <laughs> uh, Victorian era nursing rhymes that nursery rhymes that uh, uh, exist in the current day. But I think part of that is he was a female axe murderer, which now a hundred and what hundred and thirty odd years later yeah. is still relatively an, an anomaly. Well, um, I was I, I was fascinated by the uh, Borden case. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was a TV movie with Elizabeth Montgomery. Oh, we've all seen that one. Yeah, you I bet. remember seeing it as a kid and going, "It freaked me out a bit." <laughs> right. Well, you were watching all that good stuff in the seventies, and we never got to see the the Julia Roberts or Julia Roberts, Julia Wallace <laughs> movie that you saw. I'm wondering if it's on YouTube. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind uh, watching that now because, uh, but. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the Lizzie Borden case, the Wallace case, though, every, what, three or four years or so, a new book comes out on it. But once or twice a decade, there'll be a new book, some better than others. Um, like I said, as far as I was concerned, when Murphy's book came out, that was game over. I really, I had no interest in any more conspiracy theories or any of that nonsense. Uh, and then your book came out, which is more readable. Wallace, Murphy's is amazing, but I think... Uh, you know, it was yours is more palatable for the average true crime reader. It's easier to follow. Uh, it's extremely engaging. All the relative information is in there and then some lots of neat stuff. Um, and you get to the right conclusion at the end of it. So there's like for me, it was very satisfying. And like Jonathan said, uh, who Jonathan has not read all the books I have. So he's reading it. 
and in his mind, questions are forming. Like, I wonder about this. Is he going to address this? And he says, by when he gets to the end of the book, you have addressed those questions and concerns he has. So that's right. that massive achievement in such a confusing case. Uh, so mm-hmm. I look forward to continuing to recommend this book to people for years. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, and um, then um, as we said, you know, and I, I compared it to almost like an A to Z of the crime. Um, you include um, all of the um, different affidavits that Wallace um, um, provided um, in uh, appendix. And, and then what I found really interesting was the list of evidence that they gathered and collected from the crime scene and which items Wallace requested to be returned to him and, and which ones he didn't request to be returned to him. <laughs> Um, I even you know details like that reading through the list and which one which, which items Wallace wanted back um, was really interesting and a, and a nice touch so it's uh, it, it is an incredibly thorough um, examination of the case really enjoyed thank you, it. Thank you. Well, um, so uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up I thank Mark Russell for being on the show today and uh, his, quick, Mark, um, uh, where where can people buy your book? It's at Mango Books, um, Tom, mangobooks.com. And uh, hopefully it'll be on Amazon and Book Depository and places like that, you know. Mm-hmm. I do think Mango has to deal with Amazon. Um, and um, I think that they might have an arrangement with the U.S. distributor through Amazon. I'm not I'm not quite sure. Tom, did your did your book come from the U.K.? or? Uh, it did. From I, well, Mango? I ordered it from Mango Books. Uh, so, and yes, it did. It did come uh, from the UK. Okay. I, I think as well because it has got you know it's got an ISBN. It's been a properly published book. I mm. do think any bookseller can just order it with the ISBN as well. So I might be wrong. If I am, Adam can show to me. But yeah. <laughs> but as of today, I'm looking at Amazon.com and it says uh, it's available for pre-order and it'll be released in August of 2021. That's on Amazon.com, hardcover and paperback. Whereas uh, if you go to Mango Books, that's where I ordered it, um, then you can purchase it now and uh, you know receive your... I got my copy relatively quickly. That's and the generally, company. yeah, and generally there will eventually be a uh, Kindle version um, right. if, um, yes. Man- um, available on Amazon and everything. That Mango, that's how Mango usually operates. Um, and um, so the book, again, is called Checkmate. And as we were just saying, it is available now through Mango Books. I highly recommend it. Tom highly recommends it. I ordered mine last night, and I can't wait uh, till it arrives next week to actually read it. So, uh, oh, we spoiled it for you. <laughs> no, it, it was on Jonathan's recommendation last night. I think I actually got around to ordering it because I I'm saw, sure. you know, when it was announced, I was like, "Oh, it sounds interesting." I saw the cover, and I'm I'm a sucker for a great cover, and I said it's a great cover. And then Jonathan sold it last night. I was like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I didn't realize until my copy arrived that uh, I saw the cover on the internet, and I didn't notice the photos of Julia and and William on the the black check uh, the, the 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 chess pieces on the board until I got and I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, because chess is is always this is called the chess club murder. Uh, it's been called what the the telephone murder. I hate that name. I like the the chess club murder is a little more more fun. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, it just it's very evocative of this era lost to us now between the two world wars, uh, the reign of detective fiction, and then this out of it, this this murder case arises, and it, it's a, a case of timing, and it grabbed everyone's attention to the extent that it continues to, although not as celebrated as the Lizzie Borden murders, it continues to find readers today, those of us born decades and decades after it happened, and and. Uh, and to your credit, Mark, uh, yeah, yours yours will become the go-to book, I think, in the future. Yes. Um, and, well, in the present, uh, in the present and in the future. There will always be conspiracy theorists, so don't, oh. don't be put oh, off yes. by the fact that you're not going to completely quash that. But for readers <laughs> who discover, uh, you know, Wilkes or Gannon or, or Goodman, and they're intrigued enough by the case, they will find their way to your book. And when that happens, they're going to step back and they're going to feel like, okay, I finally have the answers I've been looking for. And they're going to feel satisfied by that. I know I was. Thanks a lot, Tom. All right. Thank you thank again, you, Mark. Well, yeah, I wish you all the success and job yeah, well done. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Thanks.